Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Let's pray. Father, as we open your word, we ask that you would illuminate this passage to us, that you would speak to us through these words. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. I talked last week about the old English tradition of reading ghost stories at Christmas. Um, I've been looking at uh, fairy tales recently. And uh, fairy tales, as you know, if you go back to the original uh, are a lot less appropriate for children than you remember. If you go back to, to Grimm's, for example, uh, that's probably not fairy tales you would want to share with your kids unless they're already pretty warped and you're not concerned about how they're going to grow up. Uh, for example, the story of Hansel and Gretel, if you go back. Uh, when I grew up in the South, we called them Hansel and Gretel. But uh, when I came here, I learned there are people who, who know better how to pronounce these sort of Nordic words. So Hansel and Gretel uh, are turned out of their house because they have a new stepmother. And so their dad sends them, you know, to go live in the forest like you do. And uh, it's kind of traumatizing when you think about it. But Hansel and Gretel, this little brother and sister, have to go out into the forest to fend for themselves. And as you can imagine, they're, they're filled with fear and anxiety. And the main fear is that they won't be able to find their way back. That is, they go into the, the, the forest. It's like a maze, and you can get lost. And, and, and what if they're never able to find their way back? Well, Hansel comes up with a pretty clever idea to prevent this from happening, to kind of address their fears. You remember what he comes up with, his, his master plan? He has bread, and so he breaks off pieces of bread, and as they travel through the forest, he leaves a trail of breadcrumbs behind. And the idea is that, that they'll never get lost, because if they want to find their way back home, all they have to do is retrace the steps, just pick up the pieces of, of bread and they'll find their way home. There is uh, one problem with this plan. It would have been fine if not for those hungry birds. That path disappeared, but that idea of, of a trail of breadcrumbs has been preserved for us. We use this term even in uh, like web navigation. If you're going through the internet, you're searching through information, clicking on one page after another, there's so much information that it's easy to get lost and not be able to find your way back to where you started. And that's why on some websites you'll have breadcrumbs at the top, a little header that gives you like your source and then the subpage that you clicked on and then the other page that you clicked on and you can see all of those pages in a little stream so that if you want to get back, you know how you got here. You can find your way back through that trail. 
So the anxiety is that we'll be lost, and the solution is to have that trail that leads us back. Uh, Hansel actually wasn't the first to have this idea. If you go back all the way to Greek mythology, uh, you'll find that this was a very old solution to a common human problem, the fear of being lost. If you know your mythology well, you know who killed the Minotaur. Uh, well, I should start by saying, if you know your, your uh, mythology well, you know what the Minotaur was. The Minotaur was a guy who had a bull's head, and uh, that's pretty weird. And he lived in a maze, and people were sent into the maze to be sacrificed to the Minotaur, which is a bad thing to have happen to you. And uh, one of the people who was sent there was a young man named Theseus. And Theseus killed the Minotaur by going into the maze and killing him. But that only really tells you half the story. He could never have done what he did were it not for his girlfriend, Ariadne, who happened to run the maze. Because as Theseus entered into the maze, uh, helpless and unarmed, she gave him a gift of a sword. Young guys, you're thinking, that's the kind of girl for me. She gave him a sword, but she also gave him something else. She gave him a ball of thread. And the idea was that as he entered into the maze, he would tie off the thread so that whatever twists and turns he took, he would always be able to find his way out because the thread would lead him back. The great thing about thread as opposed to bread is that birds don't eat thread. And so this worked perfectly fine, and Theseus was able to kill the Minotaur with the sword and then find his way back out of the maze and get the girl, all because of Ariadne's Thread, which is another idea that has entered into the common lexicon. In fact, uh, when people talk about problem solving now, like mathematical problem solving, there's a method of problem solving where you anticipate like all of the possible logical solutions to the puzzle, and that kind of thinking is called Ariadne's thread. Again, the anxiety is that we'll get lost. That the, that the complexities of the forest or the maze are such that we would lose ourselves in them, and the solution is to have some kind of thread, some kind of path to bring us out so we can find our way back out. When we talk about discipleship at Grace, one of the words we use is, is finding your way. The life of discipleship is a life of finding our way in life. Like finding our way. You see it if you look in our order of worship right at the front. Uh, you'll see grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. So there's this understanding that we need to find our way in discipleship to discover the gifts that God has given us. If you're a disciple, you feel the need for some kind of a roadmap. If you just open up your Bible at random and start reading, it's like a forest. It's like a maze. It's hard to know what to do and where to go. And so we're looking for a path. We're looking for a a trail, some kind of a thread that will guide us, that will keep us from being lost. When you read Romans 8, 28 and 29 and 30, what we've just read you read that, it seems as if what, what Scripture is giving you is exactly what you need. It's giving you that trail of breadcrumbs. It's giving you that thread. It's giving you that path that you need to follow, a, a kind of map. The way that some people read these verses, it's exactly the kind of trail that Hansel and Gretel 
laid, a trail of breadcrumbs, just as secure as the one that they, they laid. In other words, not very secure at all. There's a path of discipleship to follow, and you may make it, and you may not. In fact, you probably won't, because it's actually quite hard, but do your best to follow this path. But as you reflect on these verses and the words that Paul says, I want you to see that what's being outlined here is more than a path. What's being outlined here is something more like a chain. It's more like a tether, an unbreakable tether that connects the beginning to the end and cannot be severed. That's what we'll see in this text. We're going to see that it works as a chain. We'll consider what this chain is made of. We'll consider what the, the chain, uh, how each link in the chain fits together. Because Paul gives us several different links that are connected. Before we do that, though, I want to take advantage of the, the, the little context that we have on either side of this passage to remind ourselves of some things. Right, we're going to look back for a little bit. We're going to look forward a little bit as well so that we understand how to read the passage that we're concerned with. So when we look back, on what we've been reading in Romans 8, we remember that there's a struggle, that there's a a life of hardship, a life of difficulty that, that every follower of Christ endures. As we saw in chapter 7, it can seem as if it's a hopeless task, this fight against sin, a task that would lead you to despair. What hope is there? Who will deliver me? Paul asks. And the answer that comes in chapter 8 is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, our comforter, our companion in the journey, is the one who gives us strength, who gives us direction in that hardship and in that struggle. When we looked last week and we saw that all things work together for good, we also saw that in context, the all things that work together for good, there's a, a a sense in which we should understand that as all things, especially the hard things, work together for good. Because this is an assurance being given to us as we struggle with the subjective condition of our our lives. So in a sense, what Paul is doing is he's finding us in like our subjective experience of faith. And to assure us, he's pointing us to the objective work of Christ. It's like, I know it's hard. I know it's a struggle. This is what you were called to. But in that struggle, remember what Christ has done and what Christ is doing and what Christ will do. That's the assurance that we find in looking backwards. That's what Paul is doing here. So all things, when we read it in the context of what came before, emphasizes especially the hard things. It emphasizes that subjective struggle. But now as we move forward, In verses 29 and 30, Paul is enumerating for us some of the all things that work together for our good. And those things that he's enumerating are not the subjective hardships. They are the objective work of Christ. So where we have been looking at the the struggle, now we're being pointed to the certainties, to the solid objective facts of salvation that are unbreakable and unchanging, the stuff that you can cling to. The specific things that are working together for my salvation, Paul says, are actually foreknowledge and predestination and calling and justification 
and glorification. We gather that by looking back. There's some things we can learn by looking forward as well that will help us in how we interpret our passage. If we keep going and read, as we just did, verse 31, if God is for us, who can be against us? You see that the tone of what immediately follows this is confident. What Paul says after our text, these are, these are words of confidence, of assurance. If God is for us, who can be against us? So whatever Paul has said right before that, the substance of what he's said is what he means by God being for us. He's just shown us the way in which God is for us, and it leads him to exalt It leads him to glorify God, to to exult in the power of God and the certainty of what God has promised. So however we interpret what Paul says in verse 29 and 30, it has to be the setup for that kind of exaltation, right? However we read those verses, it has to lead naturally to Paul talking about the fact that God is for us. And if God is for us, then, then no one can stand against us, then nothing can come in the way of our salvation, right? There must be a certainty in the way that we read this text. But there isn't always. Like sometimes you'll read a passage like this in in a curious way. If you look at verse 30, you read, those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. Sometimes when people read those words, they read them almost as if what Paul's describing is the migration of trout upstream. And there's, there's all of these you know, stages in the river as the trout are traveling upward, different obstacles that they have to overcome. And, and, and occasionally there's rocks that you have to leap. And sometimes there's bears that snatch you out of the water. But for those lucky few who manage to avoid all of the traps, those will reach the top of the river. And that's the idea. So there's a whole lot who start off being foreknown. And, 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 and maybe all of those get predestined. Who knows? And, and in time, as history works out, there's this calling thing. And some answer that call and some don't answer that call. So that whittles the herd a little bit more. But then there's, there's justification, which some get, some don't. And then that makes it a little bit smaller than, than, than the pool. But then, of course, there's some people who persevere in faith and other people who don't. And so now that whittles the herd a little bit so that eventually a few believers manage to flop themselves into glorification. And isn't it wonderful? And if God is for us, who can be against us? Said nobody ever after hearing about the Trout River thing. That would create exactly the opposite setup. If what Paul is describing here is a process of salvation that most people won't make it through, that starts really big, but over time whittles itself down, then then really the follow-up needs to be some sort of grim assurance. Like, you know, you're probably not going to make it, but glory be to God. Something like that, right? But certainly not. If God is for us, who can be against us? Right? You're not going to be shouting and screaming with joy after observing, woo, doesn't look like there's much hope for me. So it's got to be the opposite, right? That's where the idea of the chain comes in. What's being described here is not a path that, that most will fail to follow. What's being described here is something unbreakable, a tether that cannot be severed. 
No one who is foreknown is not predestined. No one who is predestined is not called. No one who is called is not justified. And no one who is justified is not glorified. The point in listing the the different links in the chain is not just to list all the parts, because this list doesn't include all of the parts. We've already seen other things that are part of that process, like adoption, for example, which follows after justification. There's also uh, sanctification. If you want to go back before the, between calling and, and justification, you could put regeneration. Involved in sanctification, there's perseverance and eventually glorification. So Paul's point here is not to give you, like, here's a list of all the steps. Instead, what he's trying to do here is, is give you the outline of the chain and emphasize the way in which it's connected from beginning to end, or to be more precise, from before beginning to the age to come. So he's not describing to us a whole bunch of different parts that go together, maybe, or maybe not, to create this thing called salvation. He's just describing one thing, one chain, salvation beginning to end, and it has a lot of different links that are forged together permanently. That's what's happening here. The result is confidence, security, exaltation. If no one who is foreknown will not be glorified, then God is for us, and who can be against us? And what possible doubt can enter into the equation? You get the idea. For what follows in Romans 8, it's essential that we see that that unbroken chain and the confidence that it instills in us. But if the chain is an unbroken chain, if it's one thing, not a whole bunch of things, uh, if it's that strong, then the question that naturally arises is, well, what is it made of? Theologians, they talk about this passage, they'll talk about it as the golden chain. And, and, And the gold there signifies its glory. But that may not actually be a great way to think about the strength of this chain, because gold is actually not the strongest metal. Gold is actually kind of soft. If you make a chain out of gold, you make it for ceremonial purposes, for decorative purposes, not structural purposes. If you're making a chain that's meant to be unbreakable, you're going to look for a different substance than mere gold. So what is this chain made of? Is it platinum? What sort of metal would be this indestructible? Well, it's not a metal at all. I say this is a chain whose substance is Jesus. The reason this chain cannot be broken at any point, the reason this chain holds is because it's made of Christ. It is made of Christ. As we think about the different links in the chain, the thing you have to remember that all of it is the work of Christ. All of it is Jesus from beginning to end. Now, we're actually told this fact by Paul, right? When Paul talks about foreknowledge and predestination, he talks about predestination to a certain thing. Like predestination to what? To be conformed to the image of his son. God has predestined us to be conformed to the image of his son. 
And you hear that and you think, well, that doesn't sound exactly right. I thought predestination was to, like, eternal life. Predestination to glory. Yes. But those are actually secondary considerations. Uh, Eternal life and glory are things you get as a result of being conformed to the image of his son. The reward is Christ-likeness, and what comes with it is glory. But you have to get things in their proper order. So there is no abstract principle of predestination, no sort of fatalistic determinism at the heart of reality. There is predestination to being conformed to Christ, to being like Jesus to being like Jesus. Now, ordinarily, when we use language like that, conform to Jesus's image, we're thinking of sanctification, right? That we start off in the Christian life and we are very far from being like Jesus, but the Holy Spirit works in us over time so that we don't become a lot like Jesus, but at least more like Jesus than we were when we began, right? More like the image of his son. But here, we're talking about the image of Christ more broadly. We're talking about salvation and the process of salvation as a whole. Remember, when Adam and Eve were made, when human beings were made, we were made in the image of God. And that idea of being made in God's image, that's a human thing, not just a Christian thing. Like all human beings are made in the image of God. All human beings deserve to be treated as God's image bearers. That's how important this, this bearing God's image is that we don't treat people according to what they deserve. We treat them according to whose image they bear. That's an important principle in Scripture. But when you think about that, and then you think about Jesus, who is fully God and fully man. If all humanity is made in the image of God, like whose image is Jesus in? Jesus, who is the, the, the exact image of God. He is, he is God. But he is also fully human, and human beings are made in the image of God. Think about what it is to say, conformed to the image of Christ. To be restored, number one, to what we were meant to be, the human image we were meant to bear, but, but that image is now broken in us, so the gospel restores that image, but also goes beyond that. It, it takes us beyond where Adam and Eve were, beyond just bearing the image, but bearing it in this exemplary, unimaginable way, bearing the image of Christ himself. It's the goal of our salvation. That's what this predestination is all about, what this tether is all about, is God choosing a people for himself and making them like Christ by grace. Why? Why do this? Paul also answers that question. He gives the the motive behind it. He says, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. In order that Jesus might be the firstborn among many brothers, many Adelphoi, a, a large, uncountable group of children, God's children, all of them fellow heirs with Jesus Christ, and Jesus first among them, Jesus preeminent among them. The purpose for this predestination and for this whole salvation, in other words, is the preeminence of Jesus. You think, is that a big deal? Is that an important thing? Of course it is. If you look in the book of Colossians, you see how important this is. In Colossians 1, Paul quotes a hymn to Christ, a song that that early Christians sang 
about Jesus. And the thing they sang about him first and foremost was about his firstness, his preeminence, his, his better than-ness. Jesus is better than everything that came before. He is the greatest of all. Jesus is above all. He is preeminent in all things. Listen to the words of Paul in Colossians 1, 15 through 20. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. The whole plan of salvation is about the preeminence of Christ. And those who are united with Christ by faith enjoy the gifts that God lavishes upon the Son. So it's all about Jesus from beginning to end, from foreknowledge to glory. This whole chain is made up of Christ and the work of Christ. The love of Christ is manifest in all of it. The individual links in the chain, therefore, by Christ's work, have been forged into a single and invincible tether, a tether that connects us to glory. And all those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. This word for knowledge is interesting because knowledge in Scripture is a little bit different than what we think of. When we think of knowledge, we just think of information. You have knowledge because you know a lot of stuff. But, but here, you need to think in terms of 1 Corinthians 13 kind of knowledge. This is the knowing and being known. The, now I know in part, but then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. In other words, there's a personal component to this knowledge. To say that someone was foreknown by God is saying more than that God knew about them in advance, that he had advanced information, because God is all-knowing, and so he has advanced information, in that sense, about everything. But what's being said here is something more. This is a knowledge that, that suggests intimacy. It's a knowledge that suggests love. Before creation, God knows and loves particular People, not just vague, undifferentiated categories that you need to align yourself with, but you, you, known and loved by God before the foundation of the world, which is also before you, before you existed, before you did anything, before you were capable of anything, you were known and loved by God. That's the kind of foreknowledge. It's being spoken of here. That knowledge leads to predestination. A love knowledge leads God to choose those beloved people to be conformed to Christ's image. So the anchor of the chain, it's before time. Then there's calling. Calling is a thing that happens in history. Like we are all, according to Paul, we're, we're sinners. We're born in sin. We are children of wrath until the Spirit goes to work in us and calls us. That happens in history. It happens 
in the course of our lives, during our earthly existence, those chosen before the foundation of the world are effectually called by the Spirit and regenerated now in their personal history. So you start seeing in this weird way things that are happening inside you, things that are happening in your heart that connect back to before the foundation of the world. So you, you realize there's, there's a tether, there's a, a chain inside of you that, that stretches back and is anchored before the foundation of the world. You're tied, you're secured in that way. And it keeps going. Justification, he says. Those who are called are justified. Christ's righteous obedience is imputed to them so that we're judged not based on what we've done, but based on what Jesus has done, his atoning work. The gospel doesn't say, be a good person so you can go to heaven. The gospel says, no, no, you're a bad person. But if you have faith in Christ, you'll be judged on his merits, not on yours. It's a very different kind of message. And that leads to glorification. The glorification is the end goal. To see Jesus face to face, to be like him, to be perfectly conformed to his image, to know as you have been known, that's glory. That's what we look forward to. The anxiety that we often have is, will we make it? Will we ever get there? Will we ever find our way to the face of Jesus? Because as we walk through the forest of life, the maze of life, it seems impossible to us that we will. But now we see not only is this beating, living, regenerate heart tethered to a point before the foundation of the world, but it is also equally anchored, tethered to glory. It is tethered to to the space before the face of Christ and unbreakable. So there's a certainty that comes along with that, beginning to end. There's a certainty to the salvation that we're promised in the gospel. And, And it's because of that certainty that Paul then follows on and says, if God is for us, who can be against us? Because what he's describing is is the most for-us thing that you've ever heard. That the creator of all things knew and loved you before he did any of that and determined a plan to be with you in glory after all of this is done. And that is an unbreakable chain. That is a, a, a bond that cannot be severed. There's no higher expression of the idea that God is for you than that. And if that is how for you God is, who can be against you? What can make you fear? What is there to worry about? That's the point. If this is how strong the case in our favor is, who cares about the objections? They pale in comparison. If you're tethered to glory by this unbreakable chain, then you will reach it, in other words. You will reach it. Have faith in Christ and his work. Do any of you like to climb, climb mountains? 
I have a friend in Colorado, Jeff, who is an avid mountain climber. And the problem with people like this is they force climbing literature on you. So he has me, when I visit him, read books about climbing 14ers, which are mountains that are above 14,000 feet. If they're below 14,000 feet, they don't matter. And so he gives me these books, and they're mainly about people who died trying to climb mountains. Then he says, wouldn't you like to do this? And I'm like, actually, no. So he worked on me a long time, and he said, you've got to watch this documentary. This will explain to you why I love mountains so much. The, The name of the documentary is Free Solo. So it's about a guy who is climbing the, the, the rock face of El Capitan, which is this mountain in Yosemite National Park. And he's doing it without any help. That's the solo part. He's doing it along. And he's doing it free, which sounds good, until you realize what free means in this context is without any safety harnesses, ropes, or anything like that. So if you're free soloing to the summit of El Capitan, it means you're using your your feet and your hands to climb up this sheer rock face. And if you miss, you know, you put your foot in the wrong place or you you let go for a moment or something, you just fall to your death. You know, and that's free in another sense. So I watched this thing, and it is gripping in the way that people doing crazy things that they should die for um, is always gripping. And you're thinking, I would never do something like that. Uh, And, of course, this guy makes it to the top, and that's what makes it an amazing documentary. And you don't think too much about all the people they tell you who fell off and and didn't make it uh, trying to do the same thing. But uh, when you think about that, that's how a lot of people think about salvation. They think of salvation as this sort of almost unattainable spiritual enlightenment, this sheer rock face that exists and that that you can attain if you can climb up the the mountain and if you put every foot right, if you you put every handhold in just the right place and you never let go, then maybe you'll make it to the summit. Maybe you'll make it to the top and achieve enlightenment, achieve salvation. You have to make your way up alone alone. And the wrong step can lead to you losing everything, including your salvation. That's a pretty bleak way of thinking about salvation, right? You can understand. I mean, it's it's a hard thing. Sin is a terrible problem. To get to the top of the summit, that's going to take some effort. But man, when the stakes are that high and every single mistake is fatal, that's really something to contemplate, that view of salvation. Well, There are a lot of Christians who read Scripture and they see, you know what, salvation's not exactly like that. God's more sovereign than that. God doesn't leave us to to climb the rock face of salvation all by ourselves. He does a little bit more than that. It's funny, my friend Jeff, who tried to get me to uh, develop an interest in free soloing, um, he doesn't climb that way. When he climbs, he does the safety harness ropes kind of thing, you know, and follows the path that other people have followed, the the trail that's been blazed for maximum safety in order to get to the summit. He's actually done this with almost all of the 14ers in Colorado. There's like 50-something mountains, and he's made it to the top of most of them. He's saving the most difficult ones for last for obvious reasons, because if you're going to fall off and die, you want to do it like on the last mountain, not the first one. So he takes some precautious, you know, some precautions. He, he does things not in a crazy way. He does it with ropes, basically. And a lot of people who believe in God's power and God's sovereignty and God's goodness see salvation more like this. Yeah, it's, it's a long way to go to reach the top, 
The good news is you don't have to do it alone. It's not solo. The Holy Spirit is there as your helper. And it's not free in the sense that God provides some helps, some ropes, some harnesses along the way. God has gone along the path of salvation, and he's hammered in those little spikes, those little handholds, and that makes it a whole lot easier than people think it is to achieve salvation. You have to do a lot less. If you, if you just follow the path that has been laid, you use the safety harness correctly, and you pace yourself, you can make it to the top. And it's not as difficult as it seems because God is so helpful. You're doing it, but it's not just you. God is also helping. Some people put so much emphasis on the help that God gives that it almost sounds like you're doing practically nothing. You're climbing, but God's doing like 99% of the climbing because he's so sovereign. And a lot of people think that makes salvation sound a lot more appealing than that other view, right? Because most of it is God. It's just a little bit that's you. That's how Jeff is when he tries to get me to climb mountains. He's like, you don't have to do it free solo. There's ropes. I'll go with you. There's already little handholds that have been hammered in and stuff like that. It's a lot safer than you think it is. Surprisingly, this has no effect on me. I still don't want to go climb these mountains with Jeff, even though it's a lot safer than doing it the other way. And the reason is, like, I don't know if you can tell, but I'm actually not in great climbing shape. Like, Jeff has been doing this his whole life, and he's kind of, like, like knows how to do it. Like, he has certain abilities that I simply don't possess. I can totally imagine him getting to the summit, given all of those advantages. It wouldn't work for me. I'm just not as good as he is at this. It makes sense. And that's the problem with salvation, where God does most of the work is that for really good people, that seems like a great deal. The problem is, that's not the kind of people we are. That's not the kind of people we are. So that ironically, if the plan of salvation is God will do most of the work, and what's required of you is actually so insignificant that probably you'll be able to do it, even that is no reason to feel confident and secure. Because knowing yourself, you're like, yeah, I'm going to be the one person that doesn't get the, the... the, the thing, you know, the rope hanging on the right rope hanger, and will fall. You can see my knowledge of climbing is extensive. <laughs> so that's where we get to the chain. If I'm going to get to the top of the mountain, you can imagine the process by which it's going to happen. I'm going to be tethered, and I'm going to be pulled. Now, along the way, it may look like I'm doing a lot of climbing myself, but that's going to be more like panic scrambling, <laughs> Right? And, and some of it may, by chance, look like it's, it's really good. Most of it, you'll say, yeah, that guy would fall if it not for that rope, right? And you would realize he's not climbing with a rope to hold him if he falls. That guy wouldn't be going up at all if that rope wasn't pulling him. That's the tether. That's the assurance of the gospel. It's not that God has put some safety harnesses in place so that you, if you prepare yourself, you might actually be able to do this. No. It's like you're never going to be prepared. That's okay because Jesus is at the top of the summit. And Jesus is the rope. And Jesus is pulling. And he is lifting you to glory. And if that is true, 
if by faith in Christ, Christ, through his work, lifts you into glory, then God is for you, and who can be against you? Then God is for you, and what do your doubts matter? Then God is for you, and what does this struggle mean? God is for you, and there's no doubt, no question that you will see him face to face. Philippians 1, Paul writes, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Which is a really simple way of saying what we've been saying. But I want you to hear what the gospel is saying. The gospel is not calling you to being a good person. It's not calling you to a life of perfect obedience, after which maybe if you're lucky, you may be saved. The gospel is saying, have faith in Jesus Christ, and that alone, and Jesus will do everything else. And that when you struggle, and when you doubt, and when you tell yourself, maybe this isn't for me, maybe this isn't true, maybe it's not going to happen, maybe God tried his best, but I did something to mess it up, remember that you're not doing this yourself, that you're being pulled by a tether that is anchored before the foundation of the world on one end and anchored in the other in glory. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.